We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm Chanae Ogwumike. I'm Lisa Leslie, and we're very excited to tell you about our new podcast with Blue Wire, Front and Center. Lisa and I are breaking down what's going on in our lives, in the world, and keeping it 100. We're also learning from amazing guests as well, like Emmanuel Acho. People that show love to me, I forever got their back. Vivica A. Fox. If the foundation isn't right, then the rest of it's going to go wrong from there. And more. Subscribe to Front and Center today. Listen up. All you ever ask for is an opportunity. You got it today. Where else would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me want I can't believe the Bills beat the Patriots. We've been waiting for this for years, and this league is about matchups and superstar matchups, and the matchup that determined this one was number one overall pick former MVP Cam Newton from Auburn versus Ferris State product Justin Zimmer of the Buffalo Bills. And guess who won? Justin Zimmer, a fifth-year guy who's bounced around and makes the biggest play of the season for the Bills. You know what? This is for all these Buffalo Bills team who have been under the boot of Bill Belichick for years. This is for Eric Wood, for Marcel Darius, for Paul Puzlesny, for Kyle Williams, all of these great... (laughs) Fred Jackson! For Fred Jackson, number 22. Wherever you are, Freddie, all those setbacks against New England, I know you couldn't be part of this one, but just... Justin Zimmer made sure to put a smile on your face as well as the faces of everyone in Western New York against the evil Bill Belichick empire that has dominated them. Justin Zimmer, the guy to do. Not even Josh Allen, not Stefanik. It was Zimmer in the biggest moment. Couldn't be prouder. Bills in the driver's seat for the AFC East. First time in 25 years. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Rock Pile Report podcast. I am your host, Bill season ticket holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger, and that was Kyle Brandt of NFL Network. Wow. Talking about espresso moments and just what he learned this weekend watching the Buffalo Bills play the New England Patriots. Who's not thrilled to be alive today? Come on now. Woo! I it's mean, a Tuesday in November. There's nothing else going on besides this podcast, right? No. This is the most important thing going on in America right now. No, there's <laughs> yeah, we're, there's nothing happening. 
I don't know why we didn't discuss about playing just a bunch of drops from the movie Black Sheep. If <laughs> <laughs> voting kicks ass. <laughs> Jesus. Folks, I'm going to open up with this. Last week, for me, was a really shit week. A really shit week. It started off with your usual at-work frustrations. Chris, you have those, right? Every day of my life. Okay, just just coworkers who rub you the wrong way. Sometimes you just envision them, like, sinking into a lake in a car. <laughs> You're just like, yes. Couple like, of them. <laughs> so that's So that happens. And then I get this project that I have to undertake where I have to literally, re I have to dig 50 feet of conduit, lay it, do all this by hand with my father's assistance. And then, of course, there's wiring problems. So it takes us nine hours to complete the job. Nine hours. Sounds about right. My son is teething. So nobody in my house is getting any sleep. Yeah. I mean, I... I go back and forth on whether I want to whiskey up his gums, but I don't want to. You know, I go back to Christmas Eve a couple of years ago, where me you and my brothers. That, you had to do that for you. You saw the whiskey, like the the, the, the the almost like four Christmases with Vince Vaughn. The pictures of me and my brothers brawling in the kitchen. Yeah, I thought that was at Thanksgiving. No, that was Christmas. All right. And so the thing was, shortly after that happened, literally forty five minutes after me and my brothers go to make drinks and end up in a full scale brawl in her kitchen. Oh laughing because that's how we are we're gear boys we express ourselves through violence <laughs> <laughs> afterwards we're all just laughing sitting in the living room having a great time together and my mom looks at someone else in the room and goes you know people these days make too big a deal out of people but you know we used to put i put whiskey on all of my kids gums when they were teething and look at them they're fine and i just burst i go yeah mom look at us we're gems yeah <laughs> Maybe if your mom didn't do that, your teeth would have came in straight. <laughs> so I've got all this going for me. And then, Chris, I'm at the gas pump. I've got a million things on my mind. This has never happened to me before in my entire life. I've got a million things going through my head. I'm just having a tough week. I'm trying to get all the stuff together so I can go do this conduit project, which ended up sucking. And like, I get in my truck and I drive away. And I think to myself as I'm pulling out into traffic, I wonder, did I close my gas cap? So I peek into my side mirror to look and see if my gas door is open. You had the whole gas pump? I had the whole gas pump hanging from hanging from my vehicle. <laughs> I had I had to drive a circle around the gas station. For anyone who's not familiar, there's a speed pass, a speedway. I don't know what it's called. Speedway. Oh, at William and on Union? Walden. Walden. No, on Walden and Cemetery. I don't know. I just know that I had to bust a Huey, pull out into traffic with this gas pump hanging out of my vehicle, pull back into the main driveway of the gas station, park in front of the gas station, get out of my vehicle. And then walk into the gas station <laughs> with this pump in my hands. And the guy at the counter, I'm thinking in my head, they'll know what to do. They're the gas station. This must happen all of the time. I walk in. I look at the kid behind the register and he goes, not even a kid. He's like a guy about our age. And he looks at me and goes, 
Uh, what do you need? I'm like, this is yours. <laughs> and his response is, well, what, what am I supposed to do with it? And I was like, I don't know. I thought you were the guy. I was hoping you were the guy to ask what to do with this now detached gas pump. That's how my week went, Chris. So do you know how satisfying watching Sunday's football game was for me? <laughs> uh, no, because uh, based on watching it with you, you hated it. <laughs> as I do most things, Chris, as I do most things. Let's launch right into this week's recap. Week 8, the Buffalo Bills beat the New England Patriots by a score of 24 to 21. And God, does it feel good just saying it out loud. Stats of the game. Josh Allen, looking at it here, 11 of 18 for 154 yards, no touchdowns, one pick, one sack, a 65.5 rating. Cam Newton, 15 of 25, 174, no touches or picks, two sacks for 13 yards, and an 81.1 rating with a fumble. (laughs) (laughs) Again, I love it. Rushing touchdowns. Five in the game total. Passing touchdowns, zero. Stephon Diggs, six receptions for 92 yards, a long of 41. Three first downs. No other wide receiver had more than two targets. Gabe Davis, first career drop, and it came on a potential game-sealing touchdown pass. First game all year for Gabe Davis with no receptions. That's insane for a rookie tight end. (laughs) The national media sucks. Oh, I know. When they called him a tight end. Skip Bayless. Like, calling oh, Gabe Davis a rookie tight end. I'd like to shave his head. Yeah. <laughs> Patriots running back Damian Harris. It was clearly a tale of two halves. First half, five rushes, 17 total yards. Second half, nine rushes, 78 total yards. One 22-yard touchdown and a sequence between the third and fourth quarter where he amassed 60 total yards on four carries. Is that insane? Uh, help my fantasy team. Damian Harris also led the NFL in week eight with 56.2% of all of his runs coming against eight or more defenders in the box. Running back Zach Moss, career high 14 carries, career high 81 yards, 5.79 yards per attempt, two touchdowns, and a 53% share of offensive snaps. Chris, Sunday's game couldn't have been more perfect. At least to me. Yeah. In the middle of it, yes, Chris, I am a curmudgeon. I drink a lot. I get angsty. I get fired up. But tell me that Sunday's viewing experience wasn't fun. It was fun. I got a couple of gifts out of it. Of course I, you did. <laughs> I always enjoy getting the, the Drew Gear gif. I mean, all of the nervousness. This is the first game all year that I woke up at six in the morning and I was like, oh my God, like I actually have butterflies. Like it, it's, it was there, this thing that I've been missing all season. And oh, even if I was feeling more confident than I typically have about our chances to, to win against the Patriots, I still had that. It still gave me that juice to sit down and watch the football game. One of my favorite things of the day, hats off to Mark, Mark with a C. Oh, yeah. He brought an air fryer. When you Uber to someone's home, Chris, you used to drive Uber. 
I didn't used to. I still do. Okay. So when you're Ubering, when's the last time you saw someone get into your Uber with a countertop sized kitchen appliance? Uh, I don't think that that has ever happened. No. Blowjobs, that's happened in my backseat. <laughs> Jesus Christ. But not, not air fryers. Because no one does this except for Mark Smith, which is something that, hey, shout out to Mark. Hey, raise a glass. It ended up being the hit of the part. We sit in my house. I'm looking out the window as I see them pull up and I see his, his wife gets out. She's got a bag full of stuff. And I'm like, what's taking Mark so long? And I realize it's because he's trying to sidle his way out of a Jeep Liberty with a giant air fryer in his arms. <laughs> and they come in and plug it in. And he pres- his contribution to the game day food was, tell me that wasn't genius, bagel bites and macaroni, what, macaroni and cheese bites and just a smorgas, mozzarella sticks, a smorgasbord of fryer food and an air fryer. Who brings an appliance to another man's home? I don't think it was. It wasn't just that he brought the air fryer; that he had frozen TGIF Friday foods with him. He also brought a twelve pack of Jenny Twelve Horse Ale in the special gold cans. <laughs> Chris, I was drinking those like they were like they were a delicacy. Ultimate white trash move. <laughs> and then he also he was kind enough to also bring a bottle of champagne for the post game festivities. Yeah. A video that Chris shot or didn't shoot, it's still up for debate as to exactly what happened. I shot it. I did a double tap, so I got like five seconds, and then it stopped right before he started getting sprayed, and then I started it up again, and I made at a, that time, it's it's not worth it. I made a bet that I would allow him to douse me with champagne and victory if the Buffalo Bills would somehow pull the game off, and they did. Uh, well, speaking of that, should I get... Yes. I should get mine. Get it out. I'm going to, because I haven't had it yet, because I've been so good this season. I haven't had to drink any. I'm going with <laughs> that, that lime margarita. It's going to be it's gonna be my go, because I haven't had it. Chris I've, I've has been, to drink a Seagram's for the first time all year for being wrong about the outcome of this football game. That's how you know this was a good game. When even Chris got suckered in. We were all in our emotions on Sunday, folks. And again, just giant shout out to Mark. I mean, Mark's a pro's pro when it comes to watching football. I feel like he brings, I feel like he brings the party. He's an underrated player. (laughs) He's an underrated player on the uh, game day watching team. Yeah. One of the things that struck me about this game, if we're going to start to actually dissect the game itself, was the razor thin, oh, that, oh, I like that you smelled it and cringed. Yeah, it's just, I smelled it, and it was like, just taking, like, like you're just drinking the margarita mix. <laughs> Solo is what, like, that whiff, first whiff, is like, oh, whoa, that's very, uh, very heavy scent there. Bottoms up, sir. The razor-thin margin for error that existed in this game. I mean, the agonizing way the game flowed, it shouldn't surprise anyone to hear this. But the stats show a game that if I gave them to you blindly, you wouldn't, you'd have a hard time telling who won the game. Chris, yeah, as you, yeah, blink through it, fight it, fight your way. A 52 second difference in time of possession that just happened to go to the Bills. 20 total yard differentiation that happened to favor the Patriots. Two rushing yards difference between the two football teams. 
an equal number of penalties and only a five-yard differentiation, and a nearly identical third-down conversion rate. The Patriots were 5 of 10. The Bills were 5 of 11. This may be the most statistically close games these two teams have played in the Sean McDermott era, or at least at any point in the last decade, that more than so many things underscores, at least in my mind, the narrowing of the gap that we've seen here between these two football teams. And while there's people out there listening to this that are going to scoff at the fact that it occurred while the Patriots were missing their top two receiving options, I want to explain something. The overall numbers show that this wasn't going to be a game where either team was looking to air it out, given the weather. And look at the nobody but Stefan Diggs got targeted in the passing attack on a consistent basis. No, but what was Belichick doing over there on defense? How many DBs was he was he throwing out? Was he was he trying to play? What I don't know if he playing zone or man, but he did not want to get beat by Allen's arm over the top. No, not I think, at all. I think us running was something that we were gonna we're doing all week at practice. Well, we're going to get into that. I mean, I, 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 matter of fact, I think Dable actually said they only pla- practiced a handful of passing plays. And the rest of their focus was on running the ball, knowing what was likely going to happen. But when you think about this, this was always going to be a fist fight on the ground and in the trenches, which is something that Bilicek has proven time and time again that he has a knack for. In 2012, down 21-0 at halftime, the Patriots ran for over 225 yards in the second half with Stevon Ridley and Brandon Bolden and went on to beat the Bills 52-28. to I was at that game and I wanted to kill everyone around me. Everyone. <laughs> in 2017, Sean McDermott's first season as Bills head coach. A ridiculous effort by our defense keeps Tom Brady to just 13 points in the first half. And it evaporates because once again, they use their running backs to pile up three second-half touchdowns and over 100 yards on the ground with Deion Lewis and Mike Gillisley. And in 2019 in Foxborough, with our pass defense playing some of its best football and in a game with divisional title implications, it was the Patriots ground game that again held serve. Sony Michelle and Rex Burkhead and wide receiver Nikhil Harry combined for about 120 yards with some unorthodox first downs in critical moments and ultimately the game-deciding touchdown in a game that ended in less than a single score. Brady had made that team a juggernaut in his time in New England. There's no debating that. But the thing that always seemed to screw us as the Buffalo Bills was that no matter how hard we sold out to stop that aspect of their team, it was Bilicek's ability to craft a rushing attack any time Buffalo was poised to finally match up well against the Patriots and still come away with a victory. That has historically been the thing that tipped the scales back in their favor every time we thought we had them. And so with that in mind, no one should be shocked that Damian Harris had the day that he had against our struggling run defense, specifically in the second half when they had time to make adjustments. That string of carries that he had that essentially kept them in the game, I I give it to him. We gave them a half to make adjustments after holding him to almost nothing in the first. But when, without an elite quarterback to act as a trump card. Trump? and (laughs) And with weather dictating that they had no choice, 
the Patriots were forced to rely on that rushing attack. Something that for every Bills fan still should give us pause, right? Yes. I mean, you don't trust our rush defense. No. They were forced to rely on it. Something that should have made everyone scared. But when two teams are playing a game this close, the difference usually comes down. And I guess that's been the thing. When a game comes this close and two teams are playing that tightly, the difference comes down to which team blinks the hardest and who flinches in the face of the moment, whether it's untimely penalties, turnovers, or just a lack of execution. I want everyone listening to this podcast to remember that concept for later in this podcast. Now, Josh Allen wasn't perfect. He had a second lowest yardage total of the season, added to his interception count on a bad miscommunication with Stephon Diggs. That I, I give him credit. Stephon Diggs, you could see him on TV. He was taking credit for the miscommunication on the sideline. You should have seen what was taking place in the basement. <laughs> it, was not a, it was not a miscommunication. No. Some choice words were thrown around. Some things were said. I think I insulted somebody's mother. Probably. And it was bad. And he at times even looked a little frazzled by the Patriots thing, which under Bilicek, which takes me all the way back to that first Giants Super Bowl. Bilicek does this thing when he's trying to confuse you as a quarterback that he just stands everybody up. There's no down lineman. And so you as a passer have a harder time diagnosing where the pressure is going to come from and who's going to drop into coverage. And that's him hoping that he can slow you down. And I have to, I have to agree it worked. But when you look at Allen, he was decisive in his rushing attempts. And on a wet and windy day that made throwing to anybody outside of Stephon Diggs risky, he did a good job of making timely plays to when they were there. But that first down pass to Beasley, a touch pass as he's crossing over the middle that he took for yards after the catch, something that his counterpart couldn't manage. And ultimately, that was the difference in the football game. And Cam Newton was anything but composed or timely. I mean, I, I, Chris, I, if you look at Cam Newton from this game, I think he was a, he is, he represents in this game a microcosm of what the Patriots 2020 season has been. I mean, I'm not trying to, maybe I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to editorialize this a little bit, but, or I'm going to throw my opinion in there, but I'll say this. Cam Newton's fumble was the coup de grace for the Patriots on Sunday. It really was. It was the thing that ended the game. But it was his overall performance or lack thereof leading up to that moment that set the table for that giant piece of humble pie that we handed the Patriots. On that first drive, let's, let's start at the beginning. The very first drive of the game, the Patriots manage a pair of first downs including one where Cam Newton rushes for it, gets up, does the Superman celebration, and gets heckled by Ed Oliver. <laughs> Ed Oliver's heckling him. Then, Cam takes a strange delay of game penalty at midfield, where he's trying to run a long cadence and never even comes close to getting the snap off. The next three plays, a quarterback sneak for three yards, a horrible pass where Cam, with both feet firmly planted on the ground, throws the ball low and a full yard short of his intended wide receiver. And then a called draw up the middle to Rex Burkhead on third and long for a loss of yards. Do you recall that play sparking the conversation about Mike Malarkey? No. It that seems like you bring up 
past coaches every week. Yeah. That was a play that made me think back to the days when Mike Malarkey was calling plays for the Buffalo Bills. Everyone knew that the draw was coming. Everyone knew it. It wasn't a, listen, you didn't fool anyone. And it usually happened in a place where there was no way in hell that play call was going to work. Mike Malarkey was the king of doomed play calls. And that drive, right there, it was clear that not only was Cam not suddenly going to do the thing that every Bills fan feared and morph, morph into this juggernaut of a quarterback, but by not even allowing the quarterback to attempt another throw from that far behind the sticks, they almost seemed content to say, look, we don't trust Cam. Pump the football. We'll hope our defense can hold. Literally, the next drive, the Buffalo Bills score a touchdown. The, my thing with Cam was what we talked with Schofield last week on the uh, podcast about Cam's feet, his footwork. He can't throw anything. He was consistently throwing stuff into the ground. Well, and when you look, he's flat-footed all of the time. He's just standing, sometimes with both of his feet facing the line of scrimmage, which is embarrassing. Like that's, not, that's something that if you were to do that at a senior bowl, people would be talking about how you're not draftable. Yeah. And yet, here we are watching Cam Newton do it. Later, after giving up a touchdown to the Bills, Newton leads the Patriots on yet another short drive that ends because he gets happy feet in the pocket, looks to escape the second he doesn't see anybody open, but we engulf him for a sack on third and eight. That's it. That's the end of your drive. The lack of wide receiver one and wide receiver two, combined with the weather and Cam's erratic mechanics, left this team attempting two passes of more than 15 air yards. Both off play action, they took no shots down the field. Not a single one. Even against mediocre secondary play, an inability to even threaten with deep passing is going to make all of your windows that much tighter underneath. Remember the days of Ryan Fitzpatrick once teams figured out that they could just squat on the underneath routes? Yeah. Yeah. That's what happened to Cam Newton on Sunday. And even in executing that, Cam had, I mean... They were hoping that our linebackers and defensive backs would struggle to keep pace. And we gave up. Chris, we had a lot of missed tackles. We had problems on defense. And even in executing that, Cam had passes that 2018 Josh Allen would have laughed at. You want to talk about bad mechanics? He threw some balls in this game that Josh Allen as a rookie probably would have thrown, even at his worst, a little bit better. Even in the second half when the Patriots had their halftime adjustments made, And behind some nicely designed running catch plays that allowed them to tie the game, they needed Cam to come through and outshine Josh Allen. And then even while marching, in the game's most critical moment, it was another glaring mistake by Cam Newton that led to the game swinging away from them. Call it lucky if you want, but if you rewatch the fumble, a couple things stand out to me. First of all, a lack of vision. It's a called quarterback sneak, like a quarterback run. But pre-snap... When you look at the way the field is laid out, he runs to the side of the field where all of our defenders happen to be stacked because they wanted to put a convoy out in front of Cam to give him an opportunity to run. But that's where all of the guys are. <laughs> so if you see, a, if he runs to the right on that play, off right tackle, he's probably got nine yards of real estate before the safeties even know he's there. If it's a play action and then a run to the right, instead Cam 
no wherewithal to change the play at the line. He just lines up and runs it as it's designed and runs directly into traffic. That's your first mistake. Second of all, he gets greedy. We've watched Josh Allen this year get smarter about knowing when to slide. If Cam Newton goes into that play saying, okay, I've got our first down, now I'm just going to slide, the Patriots have right around 40 seconds left inside the Bills 15, 15 to 20. Instead, he lowers his helmet, almost like he thinks that the first guy who's going to make contact with him, I'm going to run him over. Well, guess what? (laughs) He lowers his head thinking he's going to truck his way through everybody. Instead of giving just this gift of a play that the defense gave you, you could have taken it and lived to fight another day. You got greedy. And he never protects the football. Not at all. He's holding it like a loaf of bread. Yeah. It's like I'm I'm holding the ball like Michael Vick. (sighs) Cam Newton's Sunday was indeed a microcosm of the 2020 season in Foxborough. Flashes that make you believe they're a competent squad with just enough mistakes and in some cases mind-boggling failures to execute anything that have them staring down the worst start to a Bilicek season since literally the turn of the century. Add to his play the uncharacteristic struggles of the offense as a whole, with the offensive line taking two separate penalties that took first downs off the board. That's it. That's how you lose close football games, right? Yeah. Victory goes to those who makes the fewest mistakes in a game like that. How crazy is it to think that for once it wasn't us? Well, I mean, I had a drink of Seagram's. Folks, if you listen just closely enough, you can hear our collective hearts here in Buffalo breaking for them. <laughs> God, that's delicious. There you go. Fix that there. Yep. Yeah, the, the one bright spot to our, our offense was, you know, as we mentioned in stats of the game, Devin Singletary running the ball, Zach Moss. How about that? He gets he gets all those carries. And, and what week is week eight? Oh, that's when rookies snap counts kind of have an uptick. <laughs> do you still have that Rock Power Report graphic? I do. Tweet it out right now. Folks, at Rock Power Report right now on Twitter, go check it out. We charted in the preseason how – Sean McDermott likes to throttle rookie snaps and how there's a slow acclimation process that he tends to force rookies into unless he's obligated to based on roster construction. Singletary had to deal with it with uh, Frank Gore last year. But didn't we see Singletary's most impactful games come on later in the season? Yeah. Well, then it makes it just fits the mold that we're watching the same thing happen with Zach Moss. I mean, for people angry about the evaporation of the Bills' early season success on offense, the rushing attack was low-hanging fruit, or at least lack thereof. But I get it. This was a thing that you'd gotten used to seeing the Bills' offense execute well. In fact, we've watched it become such a part of our identity that even in winning and watching it struggle was enraging to large parts of our fan base. When we were 4-0, people were still bitching about no rushing attack, right? Yeah. So with that in mind, in a game where despite having the horses to play a heavy front seven look, the Patriots got cute and decided to counter our intermediate passing attack by flooding the field with defensive backs. They played almost six, Chris, almost six defensive backs on the field the entire game. Almost the same way they played the Miami Dolphins earlier this season. 
And yet this time our running backs were able to capitalize on it in spades. And in the process gave us a glimpse at exactly what Brandon Bean had in mind when he constructed this group earlier this year. First of all, they, they had solid individual performances. Singletary led to 86 yards, Moss with 81. Singletary 6.1 yards per carry and Moss had 5.78. As a group, you averaged 5.0 yards per carry. But then you dig into it a little bit deeper than that. And you saw the complementary styles of play on display. In Moss, you had straightforward running. I mean, when you saw Moss take off, he didn't hesitate. He hit the line of scrimmage hard with speed and a little bit of power. He was decisive with the ball in his hands. He got north and south really quickly, which is something that I, I was encouraged by. And he seems to have figured out how to run at the NFL level. Chris, you look back at last week's Jets game. Do you remember you and I sitting in Potter's living room laughing about him trying to truck that defensive back and it didn't work? Yeah. I think he learned something from that. I wonder if that was a wake-up call. In college, he was able to run. Th- I mean, he even said it in, after he was drafted. In college, he tried to run through guys' face masks. And he said that, hey, you know, when, when I run, I, I like to make defenders make business decisions. And I think that over the course of this early going of the season, he's kind of learned that you can't play like that all the time. <laughs> Marshawn Lynch is a special player because he was able to do that routinely. He had that physical running style. Zach Moss, being smaller, I think is realizing that's not his game. And instead, you saw him this week rely more on his wiggle than a physical brand of rushing. But he had flashes of physicality. I mean, that second touchdown run in the red zone, where he just keeps his feet moving long enough that the offensive line can pick him up and literally carry him into the end zone. That was impressive for the young player. And I really think that we saw... I think this is who they envisioned Zach Moss being. I don't think they thought we were getting Marshawn Lynch 2.0, but they saw this guy who has, I don't even know what to call it, Chris, other than wiggle. When you watch him just slip around defenders rather than trying to run through them, but he's a small compact target with a low center of gravity. He's very hard to tackle, much in the same way Devin Singletary is. And then when you watch Singletary play, I, I th- he looked to me like a much more mature running back, a guy older than someone in his current shoes or his current age. He had a very patient rushing style. He was ninth in the NFL this week among running backs for time behind the line of scrimmage. Now, Chris, you as a layperson, do you know what that means? Say it again. I was writing a tweet. Ninth in the NFL among running backs for time behind the line of scrimmage. That means that he three seconds per rush attempt before. Is this for Singletary? Singletary. So on average, every time you hand the ball to Devin Singletary on Sunday, think about how long quarterbacks are supposed to have in the pocket before they throw the football. Two to three seconds. Two to three seconds. That's how long Devin Singletary took before he got to the line of scrimmage. Makes me use my, my favorite word. Is that, uh, is that where he gets contact balance because he keeps getting hit? Well, but think about this. You'd think that if you heard that while well, he's playing slowly and he probably got bottled up at the line of scrimmage. He had just three carries on the day for two yards or less compared to Moss's seven. 
Seven times Zach Moss took off and got tackled for a one-yard gain or no gain or a loss. Meanwhile, even taking more time behind the line of scrimmage, Singletary found a way to make his runs count. Both running backs together posted the same rush yards over expectation. Now, that's a fancy metric that NFL Next Gen Stats uses to predict the success of a given play based on ball carrier speed, tacklers in the area, successful blocking, all of that. They posted a number of 15 yards. That was higher than some of the more highly touted rookies, such as uh, Indiana's Jonathan Taylor this week at negative 22, and tied with Alvin Kamara of the New Orleans Saints, underscoring just how effective these two can be when things are working in their favor. And I think that Moss is figuring it out. Interesting wrinkles that again speak to the construction of the running back room and the blend of skill sets and play calling that we've been waiting to see signs of as fans. I mean, if you recall, Chris, Singletary was in the bottom five of the NFL for rush attempts against stacked boxes. No one did it. Yeah. They stacked the box against Frank Gore, but with Singletary on the field, he saw next to none. Sunday, not a single one of Singletary's 14 carries came against extra defenders in the box. Moss, on the other hand, saw 14.4% of his runs come against him, 18th highest of any running back for the week. Compare that to Damian Harris, who had to churn out all of his yardage. 56.25% of stack boxes led the league. Led the league. And until the second half when McDaniels made some adjustments, started using the fullback more to get players, kind of to get guys at the second level blocked, it made a difference in the football game. What we saw Sunday is a sign of what this running back group was intended to be when we drafted Zach Moss and after trading for Stephon Diggs, a group that by nature of the Buffalo Bills being so talented at the wide receiver position and having a quarterback with some accuracy and a big arm, teams give pause to the concept of just stacking the box against the run. And these are two guys who have proven now that they can make plays using a combination of patience, power, And your favorite word, contact balance. You could even say they're biding their time. (laughs) (laughs) Another one of the things that I loved was seeing how the Bills ran simple concepts to the edge of the Patriots D, yet threw in pre-snap motion to remove the Patriots defensive backs from the equation on multiple attempts. Like Zach Moss's 21-yard run that set up our first touchdown drive. It's a subtle thing, but McKenzie coming across the formation from left to right gets a defensive back, John Jones, leaning the wrong direction at the snap of the ball. Before he even has a chance to recover, Croft is upfield on him, washing him down the field and out of the play, which opens the lane for Moss, and he's just right behind him. After Chris, just a week after not rushing for us, we didn't have a single rush attempt against the Jets until the second quarter. The Bills ran 28 times on first and second down. That's a lot. They were more than content to give these running backs opportunities to make plays, rather than using one rush as a simple change of pace play. I mean, that's how they've operated so far through 2020. It's refreshing to see them get back to doing some of the things that have made this team successful under Sean McDermott. Now, you could point to this performance as an outlier, but I think that there are signs within those numbers and in those nuances, like the rush yards over expectation 
and just a simple but effective design of some of our biggest runs that do point to the fact that as Moss gets healthy and he acclimates more to the pro game and our offense gets its weapons back at wide receiver, at tight end, and on the offensive line, hold on. I mean, this is this is something you can replicate. Yeah, we can replicate it. I mean, we do have we have the Seahawks this week. <laughs> I've heard their defense is very good. I mean, even the most jaded Bills fan out there listening to this has to that has to make you smile, right? The fact that we might get a ground game going. Yeah, beers. Up. If you have a beer in your hand right now, put it up. That's right. The Bills' ground game isn't dead in the water for 2020. And I think one of the things that keyed that, Chris, if there's anything else I was paying attention to coming out of this game, even though there was more shuffling, our offensive line finally showed up in terms of the run game. I mean, things were ugly quickly. How early did Mitch Morse leave the game? Seemed early. I think first half. I don't remember off the top of my noggin, but he wasn't in there for most of the game, I don't think. When we saw him go down, what was your gut reaction? That's not good. <laughs> That's not good. Expand on that a little bit. When you say not good, what, what goes through your head? Now, do you go to the extremes I go to? I don't think you do emotionally. but Well, no, I, I don't look at it as like, like I look at it like, oh, that's not good for your wife. <laughs> that's not good for your son. That's not good for your drywall. That's not, <laughs> you talking about me? Yeah, that, that's not good for the beer that you have in your hand. Uh, when we saw Mitch Morris go down, knowing that we don't have a Quentin Spain. Nope. Knowing that we're already you know thin on the offensive line in terms of proven depth, or guys who have been here. Not thin, but you're, Brian Winters is still out here playing. Okay? Yeah. Knowing that that was a thing that was taking place, even shuffling the offensive line after Morse's injury, I expected to see a recession. I thought this team was going to lay down. I expected to see breakdowns. I expected to see our rushing game fall flat. So watching them step up and rise to the occasion, I can't tell you what a hard on that left and with. That's better than Cialis. It's better than Viagra. I mean, you could take six of them. Crush it up. I'll snort a line off the table. It still won't do for me. But watching this offensive line did on Sunday, I can't get past it, Chris. I can't. When you look at this, Ike Bodiger. Didn't he grade like the best offensive player for us? The highest Bills graded player on the offense, Ike Bodiger on the offensive line, 48 snaps. 94.1 rating, 91.5 run block rating. It's the highest single game grade amongst any Bills player this season, according to Pro Football Focus. Okay. Ike Bodiger. Ike. Bodiger. Bodiger. He comes in. He plays, uh, well, what we're looking at it here, he plays 83% of the snaps because John Feliciano got the start at guard. Then he had to move to center? And then he moved to center with the injury to Mitch Morse. And you saw the interior, you saw interior rushing from this football team for the first time all season. 
I mean, the Bills' offensive line, even with the blows we've taken, with the loss of Spain, with Morse going down, somehow churned out, I think, one of their most impressive performances. Is that or is that not incredible? Seems to be. I I don't know what to make of it. I'll take it. It certainly makes me feel better as we head forward, regardless of what happens with Mitch Morris. I mean, you know his concussion history. Yeah, that's not... That's not good. No, and you don't want to rush. You don't even want to rush him back with as many as he's had. But I'll tell you, this line finally played. It finally played the way we thought it would at the beginning of the season. And there's only one person I think I can point to to be responsible for that. And that's week's this this week's hero of the week, John Feliciano. Here's the deal. I'm the best there is, plain and simple. I mean, I wake up in the morning, I piss excellence. And nobody can hang with my stuff. Uh, you know, I'm just a just a big, hairy American winning machine. Chris, big, hairy winning, <laughs> big, hairy American winning machine. His his handle on Twitter is Mongo Feliciano. Are you familiar with Mongo, or have you also not seen Blazing Saddles? Uh, when you say Mongo, I like the rest of America think Mongo McMichael, WCW wrestler, <sighs> not Mongo McMichael, former. Uh, defensive lineman for the Chicago Bears. Or Steve Mongo McMichael, member of the Four Horsemen, WCW. Or Mongo from Blazing Saddles. No, Mongo McMichael. Have you seen Blazing Saddles? No. (laughs) I quit! I quit the podcast! No. This is egregious. Mongo McMichael, WCW. Oh, what an idiot. Yeah, up top. Did you just flash the wolf pack sign at me? I hate you so much. No, it's too sweet. I I hate you so much. Too sweet. As I sit here with a beer in each hand talking about John Feliciano, all season long our offensive line has felt a little light in the jeans. Okay? Their pass blocking grades were decent, but there was no aggression, and the run blocking was worlds worse than anything we've seen under Sean McDermott. Enter John Feliciano. I wasn't sure what to expect, considering how much time he had missed. But he was the third best run-blocking guard in the NFL last year. So watching him enter into the game and on that first drive, they they rushed to his side for that 21-yard run that we're talking about with Zach Moss. They run behind his side of the line. And then they ultimately get into the end zone. And then early in the game there, you see your center go down and you say, okay, well, that's it. I don't know who's going to man the pivot. Did I, can anyone tell me that they honestly noticed a difference with John Feliciano out there? Huge difference. Other than our rushing attack got better. Now, that's not to disparage Mitch Morris. Instead of anything, what that does is it speaks to how good John Feliciano is and how badly we've missed him. He showed up, and this line played a more physical brand of football as a whole, especially on the interior. I mean, when you talk about the guy manning the pivot being the most physical guy in your team, isn't that what you want? Yeah. That's never been Morse's strong suit. Now, I'm not saying that Morse should ride pine for the rest of the year. I'm saying, how good does it feel to know that you finally have an offensive lineman who you know is going to bring a little bit of nasty to the game? With Cody Ford out, with John Feliciano out, this line was John out there. Feliciano pl- in. With him out, they oh. were playing patty cake with people. Yeah. That game against Tennessee, there was no run. 
No. We were never a threat to run the football anywhere. No. Now that we got him back. You look at the push things get, and you look at just the, I want to call it ill intent. When you rewatch the game, for those of you out there who have the ability, go follow anyone who has film. Yards per pass, cover one. If you have the game pass, go watch the all-22 footage and watch the way this line executed. There's nasty intent coming from John Feliciano and the ripple effect of that is felt across the line. I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how long Ford's going to be out. I don't know how long Morse is going to be out. What I do know is that Ford and Feliciano, Ford in the pivot, uh, Ford at guard, Feliciano in the pivot, they remind me of the Bash Brothers from the Mighty Ducks. One of the worst movies of all time. I think the two of them could do, I'm confident that the two of them could do some things. And I'm confident in John Feliciano. Because in coming off the bench and playing such a significant role in his very first game back to action, what can't he do? Well, we know what this guy can't do. That's our zero of the week, linebacker A.J. Klein. You folks fell on your face. You get an F minus in my book. What can I say about A.J. Klein that hasn't already been said about the Holiday Inn? First of all, are you ever satisfied? No. No, not with continental breakfast, not with the halfway cleaned room. Yeah, their waffle, their waffle maker that probably doesn't work. <laughs> the half-assed continental breakfast. Yeah. They always leave you wanting something more, right? Yeah, an indoor pool. <laughs> that is AJ Klein. This game wasn't a ringing endorsement of any of our linebackers, okay? But Klein was once again horrible in a defense which is in a run defense, which is essentially the only reason he's here. Chris, he's the worst. The worst. He was often out of position. Sometimes you watch, you go back and rewatch the game. He had his eyes in the wrong place, which leads to him missing a blocker that knocks him off course on his way to the ball carrier. His feet have been slow all year. And he doesn't genuinely look like an NFL caliber football player at this point. The piece de resistance for him was being stiff-armed by James White, a running back who he outweighs by at least a good 40 pounds en route to a 28-yard gain and a New England scoring drive. The Bills have recently brought in street-free agent Darren Lee. Yes, that... The linebacker that was a glorious failure of a first-round draft pick for the New York Jets. And I'm excited about it. That's how sick this is. That's how bad A.J. Klein is. I mean, let's go back. Chris was kind enough to dig through the Rockpile Report archives for this gem of what I had to say about Lee pre-draft. So moving on, the next player on their Pro Football Focus's overrated list is Darren Lee, linebacker out of Ohio State. Now, I've gone on record and said that I do not want Darren Lee anywhere near my football team. I've maybe a little unfairly referred to him as Keith Ellison 2.0. All I know is that a small linebacker who his game is based on athleticism. Okay, He's got speed and he gets in space. He doesn't have size and he doesn't have strength, so he can't shed blocks. You're talking about a Rex Ryan defense where you need a legitimate inside linebacker. You put Darren Lee out there on the field, okay, he might be quick coming around the corner on a blitz, and maybe he can drop into space and cover a slot receiver, but 
He can't body up with Martellus Bennett. Okay. And at the same time, he's not going to get downfield on a running play and, you know, shed a block from a from a guard and get to the running back. He's not going to make that play. So I hate it when I see him mocked to the Buffalo Bills. Drew Gear, episode 23 of the Rock Power Report, April 2016. That was back before you decided to put your personality through the microphone. <laughs> it, it's cringeworthy hearing just what an emotionless ass I was trying to be. Yeah, but well, I mean. Well, no, how- because Chris, I had to be the guy who sounded like I knew what I was talking about. Yeah, no, you sound boring. I sound like I'm trying to spin records at WJYE, smooth jazz hits late in the night with Drew Gear. Yeah, nobody wants that. But, I mean, you weren't that far off uh, with your pre-draft assessment of Deron Lee. So the fact that I'm excited to see if Lee can be anything for this football team, I think it says less about him than it does the acrimony. It says more about the acrimony that I hold for A.J. Klein trying to fill in for Matt Milano. That's how much I hate what he's putting out there on the field every Sunday, and this game was no exception. In fact, I think earlier this week when the Bills trade talk was still in vogue, now that that's passed and nothing crazy has happened, I asked the question if there was an equivalent to the SPCA that the Bills could drop A.J. Klein off at. Like, I know we can't trade him, but is there just like a place where you could drop off a football player and just hope that he finds another home someday? Because <laughs> if so, I'd like to see what that looks like. <sighs> so our final thoughts on what was ultimately kind of an emotional weekend. I think an exercising of demons of sorts. Your final thoughts, Chris. Uh, hell of a win, even though it didn't look like that from my perspective watching you watch the game you know I would just assume we were the worst team in in football but you know we made plays when we needed to Zimmer came through with a with punch out Bass was making some clutch kicks in a little bit of bad weather do you know people bashing the Zimmer thing the whole Zimmer signing, everyone's like, oh, well, apparently all you have to do is get a few uh, run around behind the line of scrimmage without sacking the quarterback and you get a contract. Those people got real quiet, didn't they? Yeah, it was. I thought it was an, an, an all right game. I still want to see. I like that our running game has showed out finally that we could have one, even though our our it's a running back by committee system. Uh, I mean, I don't know what it's going to. I don't know what the game plan is going to be for this week against Seattle. I know their defense is bad, but I don't know if that means we're throwing, running, or doing a little bit of both. I'm going to open a fresh beer for this because I've been waiting a long time for this moment, and I'm going to get it off my chest. Patriots podcaster and writer Mark Schofield started off this week's episode of The Sco Show over at patspulpit.com. By simply playing the end, by the fans to listen and reflect on that. And I understand where he comes from, because at 2-5, and five, it probably ends the Patriots' postseason hopes. Or at least it ends their... Chris, we might have just ended the Patriots' 2020 season. Right now, there's seven teams in the AFC that have five or more wins entering Week 9. 
even a seven-game win streak wouldn't cement the Patriots a playoff spot at this point. They have games coming up against two teams in the top 10 for scoring in Baltimore and Arizona with two more teams in the Chargers and Houston who are averaging 32 and 28 points per game over the last three, respectively. For a team without a ton of firepower in the passing game, I don't see how they combat that. Only seven teams in NFL history have come back to make the playoffs after two and five. All of that seems pretty damning, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Remember when I said earlier about games as tight as this one, both by the box score and on the field, and flinching. Remember what I said about that? Which team flinches first? This is a New England Patriots team that for most of my adult life, regardless of the challenge the Buffalo Bills could mount, would always pull off the W because of a Hall of Fame coach setting the table in one of the greatest quarterbacks, which even saying that feels a little slimy coming out of my mouth, but one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the game. Refusing to blink in critical moments. They had an unwavering composure about their football teams throughout that dynastic run that would always lead them to being the team that capitalizes on the mistake, not being the one that makes it. If Sunday signified anything in my eyes, it's not that the Bills somehow gained the... Not that that we now have the inside track to the AFC's title, or that by beating, beating the 2020 Patriots, regardless of how satisfying it might feel for me, it somehow means that we are this quote-unquote team of destiny this year. Now, I, th- I think what we walk away from is more valuable than that. What we will walk away from this with. It's that for years we've gotten used to the gold standard of execution that the Patriots have come to represent. Not just across the NFL, but specifically against us as the Buffalo Bills. Their quarterback was always unshakable, and their head coach had an answer for every wrinkle that we could come up with. Sunday, with the Bills team playing essentially with one hand tied behind its back due to the weather and the fact... If I told you, if I had bet you, Chris, that we would have just as many rush attempts as we would pass attempts and that the rush would carry the game... Heading into this, you'd call me crazy. Probably. I call you crazy all the time. But coming into this game underhanded, knowing that the pass is the strength of this team and the weather took that away from us and that we're now going to be forced to rely on a part of our offense that was shaky at best and a pair of units in both the running backs and the offensive line that have been banged up this season. This had all of the makings of another Bills loss, especially in a close game out there for the taking, against a team who, even in their darkest hours, always find a way to one-up us. They find an edge. They execute at the last second when they have to because that's the composure that we've come to know the New England Patriots by. And yet it was the Patriots who flinched in that moment, not us. It was New England's composure that failed, not ours. And in this, I I go back to the movie 300. At the end of the movie, 
Obviously, none of them survive. That's not the story of the Battle of Thermopylae. Well, you spoiled it for me. <laughs> of course that's a film you haven't seen. God, I hate you. But they show that Xerxes can bleed and that he's human. In that way, this loss underscores for me that Bill Belichick is just... The shine has come off Bill Belichick a bit. With this loss, what I saw from that Patriots team is that without elite talent scattered around the field for him, Bill Belichick doesn't have a ton of answers. And instead, he has to rely on riskier propositions. Like, hey, let's take a quarterback who turns the ball over at least twice a week for the last month. Let's keep putting the ball in his hands. Didn't that come back to bite him in the ass? Probably. Is he is he the coach to rely on things that are unreliable? Yeah. No, no. Now he is. But think about it. Historically, he's always had these rocks, these Hall of Fame talent players scattered around his roster. Even though the, the glue that holds them together is a, a bunch of middling players, he still had tentpole talent. And without that, you find out Bill Belichick, his team, not that composed. Not the team that we gave them the credit for being when I was walking around my house with butterflies on Sunday morning. This, I understand now why Patriots fans are apoplectic. Because we just watched Bill Belichick and that dynasty look human. They made the big mistake when it mattered. They made a lot of mistakes through the game that made that big mistake possible. <laughs> In a very unpatriots-like fashion. <sighs> In that, I tip my cap to Sean McDermott because, again, he's ticked another item off of his bucket list. In what now? His fourth year? Yeah. It's weird. We usually don't get coaches to go four years. 2017, he beats the drought. 2018, we have a rookie quarterback, have a rough season. 2019, he leads us back to the playoffs for the first time. This season, we come out, we have a quarterback throwing for 300 yards. Not once, not twice, multiple times. We finally have a passing offense, Chris. Now, we're seeing flashes of a rush attack in terrible weather. Against a team that has always had Sean McDermott's number. Against a coach that has had Sean McDermott's number. For the we got lucky crowd, how do you not feel the tables kind of slowly turning here? If you can't embrace this moment and just enjoy this for what it is, and what we might see as the slow demise of something that has been hanging over our collective heads for two and a, two decades and change. That I don't need you on my I don't need you on my bandwagon, Chris. Sunday was a lot of fun. <sighs> this is one I'm going to hang on to for a while, and I'll drink to that. Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving. And that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. 
You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31st. Football is back in full swing. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign up bonuses. Don't forget to use the promo code BlueWire at betonline.ag. That's BlueWire, all one word. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. So, for as entertaining as that was, Chris, we have to move on from the euphoria of beating the New England Patriots. Because we were about to work, just walk headfirst into a buzzsaw. Yeah, Russ Wilson on the docket for Sunday. (sighs) Week 9 preview, Seattle Seahawks against the Buffalo Bills. Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard, the place, Bills Stadium in Orchard Park, New York. On the call, Chris? Oh, me, to me, uh, Chris Myers, Greg Jennings, and Brock Hewitt. It's odd to me that a 6-1 and one team playing a 6-2 and two team gets that poor of an announced team for Sunday's game. Because they think this is going to be a slaughter. No, this is not going to be a slaughter. The spread is the Bills plus 2.5. We're the home underdog for the second time this season. And it's worth pointing out that the Bills have not covered a spread in four straight weeks. (laughs) Oh, Injuries to watch. For the Buffalo Bills, I think the most impactful are tight end Dawson Knox and offensive center Mitch Morris. Mitch Morris went into the concussion protocol. What's wrong with Dawson Knox? His hands? (laughs) Yeah. Those frying pans that he calls hands, I don't know if he hurt himself in the shower Trying to wash his legs. I don't, I, don't, I don't know. On a jet ski. But Mitch Morris, that's the concerning one. And yet, you watch John Feliciano play the pivot, and he did it with more aggression than I've seen out of Mitch Morris in a long time. For Seattle, it's interesting. Both of their running backs, Chris Carson and Carlos Hyde, both out with foot injuries. Now, I don't know if either one of them will be activated. I know that Chris Carson will not practice until Friday. The team isn't going to even put him out there. They're going to wait until Friday and then see if he can go, which, Chris, that means he's missing everything. Walkthroughs, installment, the whole nine. Yeah. 
I think that bodes well for Buffalo. Strong safety Jamal Adams with his ankle injury, he's going to practice this week. And cornerback Shaquille Griffin, is he's in there with a concussion and a hamstring injury. He didn't practice all week last week or play. It'll be interesting to see if he plays. We're going to make this short and sweet, people, because I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on the Seattle Seahawks. But here's what I see when I look around football and I analyze it. And that's why you show up here every week, is to hear me break this stuff down. On offense and defense, the Seattle Seahawks, it's a tale of two units. They are Jekyll and Hyde. It's not often you see a team like the 2020 Seattle Seahawks. They are incredibly talented on offense. They have a quarterback who is firmly in the MVP conversation in Russell Westbrook. They have Russell a de- Wilson. <laughs> Jesus, did I call him Russell Westbrook? Yeah, you're watching too much NBA. I Said think- nobody, yeah. ever. Or they're, uh, you know, remember coming out of the draft, heavily mocked to Buffalo, DK Metcalf. He's, that dude is just. Sophomore phenom, DK Metcalf. Yeah. Is the lead of their dynamic wide receiver core. And they are top five in an absurd number of categories. Points four. Offensive yards achieved. First downs achieved. Passing touchdowns. They're in the top five of the NFL for all of these things. And then you factor in what their quarterback is doing right now, and it's absurd. Chris, look at the notes. I didn't have time to make my own chart. So instead, I cribbed one from NFL Next Gen Stats. Oh, yeah. Look at Russell Wilson's passer grid. There is literally... It's all green. and all The whole thing! He's above average... Everywhere, or at least around league average to above average in every single aspect of throwing the football. Everywhere. Except for down the hashes, which is weird. He has actually no grade. Oh, yeah. Uh, It's got here 10 to 20 yards down the middle and then uh, to the right. He's to the right. He's worse than average, which just don't throw there then. It doesn't seem like he has to because he's 146.8 passer rating when throwing plus 20 down the right hatch. What the fuck? <laughs> Chris, this is a Madden. Like, this is this is a Madden thing that you would see if you were at home playing a video game. And then you look at this tweet from Dean Kindig from over at BillsMafia.com. After seven games, Seahawks quarterback Russell Wilson is number two in completion percentage, number two in yards, per, number three in yards per game, number one in passing touchdowns, number one in QBR, number five in rushing yards for a quarterback, number three in rushing yards per carry, and number one tied with Fitz for the least fumbles as a quarterback. Chris. Even with injuries at wide receiver and running back, on offense, this team seems like an unstoppable juggernaut right now on that side of the ball. Would you argue with any of that? No. Wilson's playing out of his goddamn mind. And yet, while their games this season have been a lot of fun to watch, the reason that they failed the boat race, most of their opponents, stems from their defense being the antithesis of that success. First of all, they have yet to hold a single team they've played under 23 points all season long. 
They gave up 20 points and a 97 passer rating to Nick Mullen. Nick Mullen. I know. Everyone's at home going, who is who? What? Honey, Google. Nick Mullen. Alexa, who is Nick Mullen? Uh, right now, he's the starting quarterback for the <laughs> Niners. They gave up 20 points in a single quarter and a 97 passer rating to Nick Mullen. They're in the bottom five of the NFL on defense in a number of statistics. Passing yards allowed, yards per pass attempt, rushing touchdowns, first downs allowed, and points against. According to Sports Illustrated, heading into last weekend's mauling of an injured and ineffective 49ers offense, the Seahawks had allowed 2,875 yards, the most in NFL history through six games. That according to the Elliott Sports Bureau. In that article, which for you film junkies would be a fantastic read ahead of Sunday's game. So we're going to tweet it out over at Rockpile Report on Twitter. The writer Marty Brown, who admits that as part of his duties, he charts Seattle's plays on a week-to-week basis. He breaks down all the flaws in their defense that were exposed in that one loss to Arizona. One of the things that stands out to me is how much zone and off-coverage defense Seattle's played this season. That is, I mean, That has never been a part of Pete Carroll's defense. They're typically known for aggressive play and physicality. Chris, this is the guy who was the architect of the Legion of Boom. And now he's leading the team. I mean, it's ugly. It's really ugly that his team is giving up the most yards on defense in NFL history. And yet they're winning football games. (laughs) They're winning football games despite this. And when you compare that to the game they just played against the underman San Francisco offense, you saw them play much more man in that game which allowed the front seven to play a more assertive style of defense. So a look back at the tape, and I think the box scores, it shows a few things. The Seahawks are playing a softer style of defense, simply because whether due to injury or ineffectiveness, their defensive backs just aren't up to the task of playing man cover or being physical in coverage with wide receivers. Now, for a defensive system that's predicated on that, I think it exposes them really badly. The result, as we've seen in their games, is teams racking up a league-leading 1,668 air yards against them. That's just air yards. Chris, teams are throwing the ball 1,600 yards through the air against this team, and it's being caught, which means their coverage is poor. Yeah, I'm... Makes me excited to see Josh Allen do something against his D. Typically for zone to be effective, you need a pass rush. Something Bills fans have been bemoaning all season. Because our zone defense has kind of been foiled all season long by the fact that our defensive line has been poor. If you can believe it, the defensive line for Seattle has even been more effective than Buffalo's. They're 24th in the NFL in sacks, despite being 11th in the NFL in pressures. The result of playing zone with no pass rush in front of them is that they have eight players listed as starters, guys who have started the majority of games they were active for, at defensive back and linebacker who are allowing a QBR of over 97. Eight. And they have five over 100 when they're targeted. 
their starting three cornerbacks have given up a whopping whopping 844 air yards with an additional 461 yards after the catch. To put that into perspective, because Chris, that's what, 1,200, 1,300 yards total? Yeah. Buffalo, our cornerbacks have given up 568 air yards and 265 yards after the catch between four players. Add in one extra player from our secondary, given the switch between cornerback Josh Norman and Levi Wallace. Four players, and yet we're still under 800. <laughs> and they're over 13. Their cornerbacks have been atrocious this season. And in instances where there are multiple wide receivers on the field, their safeties have been dog shit at filling their run assignments or providing any support inside the box. That inability to make positive plays on defense short of turnovers, something that they're actually in the top 10 of the NFL for, has created a situation where even as their offense sets the world on fire, they're still in shootouts every single week. They scored 34 points against Arizona, but lost by a field goal in overtime. They were ahead by just a single score entering the fourth quarter of their matchup with Miami. Just two weeks ago, they were losing 13-0 at halftime against the one-win Minnesota Vikings. They They had to stage this furious comeback that forced them to score a touchdown with less than 20 seconds left in the game to win by a single point. And they allowed 20 fourth quarter points to a San Francisco team missing its starting quarterback, its star tight end, and most of its offensive talent. It's insane. How does a team play so well on one side of the ball and so badly on the other, Chris? Have you ever seen this before? Uh, Actually, I I have seen it before. It's called the Big 12. (laughs) I'm really happy that beard didn't come out of my nose. Holy shit. I mean, guys, yes, this team is firmly entrenched in that same category of team as the two that demolished the Buffalo Bills in October. The Tennessee Titans, the Kansas City Chiefs, their experienced quarterbacks playing the best football of their careers, coached by solid head coaches. But unlike the other two, This team has shown zero ability thus far to put forth an NFL-caliber defensive effort for four quarters. Chris, how confident does all this information that I've just laid on you make you feel? Uh, I've kind of, you know, thinking about this game, have always thought that this is going to end up, because the weather's going to be nice, it's going to end up being a shootout on Sunday. I think both teams are going to get into the 30s. Every game Seattle plays in is a shootout. Why would this be any different? You want to come to the casino with me? Take the over? What's the line? I don't know. I haven't looked. Fuck it. Let's do it. Here. Cheers. We'll toast it. Whatever the over is, we'll take it. (laughs) Oh, I can't believe... I feel like... I feel... I feel like Al Pacino in The Godfather 3. I try to get out, and they pull me back in. (laughs) Not that you would know, because you've never seen the movie. No, I have not. Folks, we're going to close this thing out with my keys to victory. Wow, it's a lot of keys. Bigger the keychain, more powerful the man. Coming off a of Patriots when I feel strong as hell. Powerful, baby. 
The first key is the Bills secondary against DK Metcalf. Bracket coverage? This is the equivalent of trying to prepare yourself for Godzilla making landfall. Except Godzilla has pink hair. You know it's going to be a mess. You just hope that collectively you can come up with a cohesive enough strategy to deal with it and that not everything that you own gets destroyed and only a few people get killed in the process. Metcalf is a monster, both physical and attack of the Seahawks. He single-handedly accounts for 39.9% of the team's air yards. Not just passing yards, yards through the air. Chris, every time that Russell Wilson throws the ball, air yards, DK Metcalf has 40% of them. That's a lot. (laughs) That, despite being 18th in the NFL in average separation, he's getting no separation, but he's a monster. He leads the team in yards after the catch. He's a physical specimen with rare traits for the position that we haven't seen since Megatron. And on Sunday, our defense is going to have to try to grapple with all of that. I mean, this is a game where, to your point, you talk about bracket coverage, one of the few defensive terms you know. Correct. If you try to bracket DK Metcalf, the quarterback is just going to find another place to hurt us. And I don't even know if bracket coverage is enough to stop DK Metcalf because better teams than us have tried. If we want to have any hope of slowing them down, what we need, this is like an Avengers movie. We need a vintage game out of Trey White. More than anything else, Trey White has to show up for this game. Show some flashes of the abilities that made him an all-pro last year. That got him paid. Without that, if we don't have our star defensive back playing like a star defensive back, it's going to be a long and brutal afternoon for our secondary. The second key is Allen avoiding mistakes. For all the things the Seahawks defense isn't, they're number one in the NFL in turnovers forced. For lacking in physicality, and cohesiveness for understanding of how to play zone defense. They're still opportunistic. And Jamal Adams, the newly added Jamal Adams, plays a distinct role in that. If he plays. He's going to play, Chris. Do you want to bet a Seagram's on it? No, it's too early in the week. We know Adams to be a strong safety by trade. For the Seahawks... He's not their best coverage player. I mean, he's got a 115.3 rating allowed when targeted. 131 air yards on 15 targets. But they've blitzed him 31 times. More than the rest of their defensive backs combined. Second on the team only to Bobby Wagner. Who, longtime standout linebacker who thrives in that blitzing role. He's particularly adept at the delayed blitzes in the A and B gap. When the quarterback already thinks they have a snapshot of the defense, and then all of a sudden their timing gets disrupted and rushed because you have a defensive back who's built like a linebacker coming in the A gap. Those rush throws have a way of ending up in the hands of the other defensive backs. 
solving those blitzes and having a clean game from a turnover perspective, regardless of how many yards he scores, how many yards he has, how many scores he throws for, keeping us clean is going to be paramount for Josh Allen in this game and our chances in coming away with a victory. Because that's what, for all the things that this defense isn't, that's why they stay in these football games is because they're able to force turnovers. I think the third thing and the most important thing is to establish Moss and Singletary. Until this past weekend, the rushing attack in Buffalo was essentially an afterthought. A quote-unquote nice to have, not the straw that stirred the drink. I mean, for fuck's sake, they didn't even try one until the second quarter against the New York Jets. On Sunday, I think it's going to be the rushing attack that either wins or loses this game for the Buffalo Bills. Are you saying we're going to have to rush, rushing the ball, establishing a run is essentially just going to help us keep Russell Wilson on the sideline? You have to eat clock in this game. This is a game where you're going up against a team that, yes, they're a buzzsaw on offense. So the more opportunities you give, they're human. They'll make mistakes. But if you give them too many opportunities, they'll absolutely eat you alive. So you have to limit the damage they can do by eating as much clock as possible and still getting still getting points. Points in every drive. And if you're going to do that, Chris, you have to be able to rush the football. That ball control offense. I mean, we're going up against the 32nd ranked third down defense. The Buffalo Bills just set a record, a team record, for third down conversion percentage. Better than anything Jim Kelly was dealing out. Does that make you confident about our chances? I think I honestly think that this is going to be a high-scoring game, and I am going to go with Seattle just based on the experience and having been there for big games. And I think it's going to be a Seattle 38-35. There's a part of me that wants to agree with you. They, they, they have the more experienced kicker. Jason Myers has done a great job for them. And in a, sh- in a close game, isn't that usually what it comes down to, Chris? The guy who can make a 53-yard field goal versus the young kid who might miss it. And that ends up being the difference in the game. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. I want to agree with you. I mean, if you're Buffalo, you can't let them turn this into a boat race, which they absolutely can. They can get out in front of you and never give up the lead. But there's signs that it might not come to that. If you can execute your game plan appropriately and if your defense steps up. And with that in mind, I mean, I don't believe... Chris, are you confident that our defense can throw anything at... think Think about the teams with much better defenses that he's foiled already. Our defense has not shown out at all this year. No. So I'm not confident in that aspect. But there's something about this matchup and just how poor their defense is and the fact they have to travel all the way over here to come come do their work. I, I I, I like our stance with the puncher's chance. How about this? And yet, with Mongo on the offensive line, 13 games all-time against Seattle. We're 5-8. and eight. 
Five and eight. All right. So Seattle has held serve. With Feliciano back, with Bodiger playing some of the best, Chris, some of the best football that this Bills football team has seen all season. I feel like we have an opportunity here against a weak defense to control the line of scrimmage for the first time, a throwback game. Back to the days, the the 2018 Buffalo Bills, when you knew that you were going to have to run the ball 30 times and let Josh Allen throw it 15, 20, except against a secondary that's just wilting on the vine. This this thing, the ball is there for to, to be moved on offense. You can score when you need to score, and you can control the clock if you think your offensive line is good enough. I think they showed some progress in that New England game and against an inferior defense. I think we should be able to do more of that. I think the Bills' run game should be able to control more of the clock, should be able to keep us in this thing. I just feel like at home against this team, I can't, I'm not going to root against them, Chris. And I like the fact that one of us will end up drinking a Seagram's next week. I'm going to take the Buffalo Bills by a field goal. Buffalo Bills by a field goal. I don't give a shit what the score is. That's what I'm calling it. Well, the last time we beat the Seahawks was here, 2008. We did go for a field goal, but then Brian Mormon decided to throw it to Ryan Denny. Ryan Denny! It was one of the best trick plays in history because Ryan Denny made it look like he was talking to the referee about something. Oh, yeah. He was like trying to leave the sideline, but he was just hanging out over there, and then it was like a 30-yard touchdown pass. That was what? the last time we beat the Seahawks. Oh, wait. Yeah, we're not going to bring up the time that uh, Richard Sherman ran into Dan Carpenter. No, no, we're not. Yeah, Reed Ferguson remembers that one. Yeah. <laughs> Reed, we love you, brother. Guys, I'm, I'm taking the bills no matter what. I'm, I don't give a shit what the score is. Chris, we shake on it. No, we pound it. We pound it. Still hey, coronavirus. Don't touch me, bro. Don't touch me, bro. Don't touch me. <laughs> Folks, anarchy. If if the Buffalo Bills win this week and go to seven and two, it's anarchy. It's anarchy here in Buffalo. And if not, what do we really have to lose? With that in mind, I'm happy you all showed up this week. It was a meaningful week for Bills fans everywhere. Make sure you tune into our AFC's Roundup podcast. We're doing volume two of quarterly reports. We've reached the halfway pole of the season. Eight weeks in. And we go around the division with some of our some of our closest friends as podcasters from each team to kind of dissect where we think our teams stand individually and get their takes on where they think they are in the hierarchy of the AFC East. If you love the race that the Bills are a part of, it's a must-listen podcast. Go check it out. Chris. I don't know what else is going on tonight. I think I'm just going to – I mean, is there, is there really anything? I mean, I mean, uh, this podcast might be the most important thing going on tonight, right? Yeah, I don't think there's anything <laughs> else important going on on a Tuesday night, November 3rd. Listen, everyone be fucking nice to each other, all right? Yeah. Can we just get back to where people can fucking talk to each other? That's it. That's where I'm going to leave this. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. And this has been the Rock Pile Report.